Welcome everyone to episode 36 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I'm here with Cole South. Cole, how are you doing? Hey, Brandon. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So this type of podcast is a relatively easy podcast to do. I'll tell you why. Whenever you have a legend on in the, in the poker world, it's guaranteed high viewership. And this is especially true if the person doesn't do any podcasts. So I would put you very much in the category of Sauce123, who I think before he came on my podcast had done one other podcast. And obviously he's a, a legend in the poker space. And that was, I don't know, my second or third most popular podcast. Well, thanks, Brandon. That's very kind of you. I've listened to a ton of your podcasts, including Sauces, Strassers, Aaron Browns. Um, really enjoyed them. So least I could do, come on and repay the favor. And I, I have to tell you that your podcast, I'm expecting will get a plus 50% or plus 100% bump for a very simple reason. Um, you're deep in the crypto and NFT space. Yeah, definitely a rabbit online community for sure. I think, uh, yeah, that should be worth at least 2x. So because, because I have the luxury of a, of a guaranteed large audience, we're going to pace nice and slowly. We're going we're gonna to go all the way back to your high school years. Um, we need like, like a brief, I don't know, 30-second, 60-second synopsis of, of what your high school years were like. Sure. Yeah, I went to a large public school in Virginia. Um, kind of like took all of the easiest classes I could and then did very well in them. And so I got like, you know, good grades, but kind of coasting through high school. Um, was huge into skateboarding. Uh, skateboarded all the time with friends, made skate videos, that sort of thing. And then went to William & Mary, a small public school in Virginia. Had a few friends going there and it was uh, one of the few schools that let me in. <laughs> and um, yeah, so started there in 2000 and then uh, found online poker shortly in. And that kind of led me transitioning out of school in the poker. But wait, I'm confused. Okay, because you started William and Mary in 2000, you said? Yep. Oh, no, sorry, 2004. Okay, 2000. yeah, that was going to be very confusing because um, I listened to your podcast with our friend Joe Ingram, the only other podcast that you've done as far as I could tell, or the long form. And um, you mentioned in that podcast that you essentially found online poker in late 2005. Yep. Yeah. It would have been sophomore year. Got it. Um, and that basically took over. Yeah. You know, it was sort of thing where um, I've got a very addictive personality. The online poker games back then were tons of action. I could really tell that if I applied myself, it was the sort of thing that I think I, I thought I could do do well at and succeed at. So I hopped in pretty quickly and within six months uh, had seen enough traction that I left school and moved out to LA with uh, some other poker players that I met on the two plus two poker forums. Wow. You were in a poker house. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, tell me, tell me about that poker house. Yeah, it was cool. It was like six of us in Manhattan beach. Um, Cool little area. All of us were kind of, I'd say like up and coming mid stakes, no limit hold'em players. Um, it was great to, you know, live with a group of guys that were all bouncing around poker strategy, working hard to improve their game, 
And um, yeah, it's definitely very helpful and, and just fun too. They're great friends. You sound pretty coy about the exact names. Don't make us dig through the two plus two archive <laughs> to find them. There's yeah, there's probably some old photos back on two plus two. Uh, Dan Bright, Billy Jex, Slider. Those were some of the guys. Nice. So that might've been one of the first poker houses then. Yeah, that was definitely early on. I think they, you know, really started to catch on during the summers in Vegas for a world series of poker. But this was, I think probably right around the same time that, you know, Durr and David Benefield, you know, got a house together in Texas. Uh, it was definitely picking up a little popularity to live with some other poker players who were trying to get good at the game. So it sounds like you didn't really try to balance studies and poker for so long. At some point, you just decided that this is it. I'm all in on poker. Yeah, it was pretty quick. I always felt like I could go back to college if, uh, if I ever wanted to. And I, and I ended up going back and finishing my degree. Um, so it just didn't feel like I had a ton to lose to give it a shot. I had worked up enough of a bankroll to where I at least had a, a little bit of a cushion for living expenses and stuff. And uh, decided to go for it. Nice. Um, okay. So the story you told on Joey's podcast is that you stumbled upon the two plus two forums. How, how does one stumble upon the two plus two forums, first of all, and then having stumbled upon them, you realized that you could make quick progress. You checked out some books from the library, some poker books, and then read them during the Christmas break. And it was off to the races from there. Yeah, exactly. I think in that period, I'd maybe deposited 50 bucks a couple of times, ran the 50 bucks in some limit hold'em games up to one or 200 bucks, then, you know, jumped up in stakes, played something where I had 10 bets and busted the roll. And um, so, yeah, kind of over that Christmas break, sophomore year, I was like, all right, let's put, you know, one last deposit, take this seriously, use bankroll management. Um, remember checking out theory of poker and maybe like some Ed Miller books, um, low stakes hold'em or something like that. And yeah, really from there, I just tried to kind of implement those, the strategies from those books. Uh, two plus two was the publisher of many of those books. So I think, I think the books led me to their online forum. And then the forum was just, especially at that time, such a good spot of a lot of people in the same position, uh, very openly sharing their kind of journey through poker, their strategy they were learning and kind of how they were putting everything together. That was a fun spot back at the time. Yeah. Uh, the forums used to be a, a, a cool place to hang out. Um, and I, I should have followed the forums to like Reddit world, right? I All the people that used to hang out in the forums, they were basically the first ones to get into crypto and that kind of thing. And I somehow moved away from forums just as the chat went into crypto, like in 2011, 2012, it was a missed out. And I remember the, uh, the business finance and investing forum on two plus two had some really good threads in there. And I remember like when, uh, crypto was just starting out, it was probably like 2011, 2012, there was a Bitcoin thread in there. And I remember just like loosely seeing the name of the thread and coming back a few days later. And it was already like 300 posts long. I was like, ah, man, this is just there's already so much content in here. I'm just going to probably pass on this one, check out the next thread that pops up and like didn't investigate it at all. And then if you go back and look at this thread, you know, some of these guys were, you know, talking about trying to accumulate 1% of the total supply of Bitcoin at the time. And uh, there were a few guys from that thread that actually became huge Bitcoin whales too. I can guess one of them because in the world of poker houses, 
there was in 2010 a poker show, Doubles Poker. And I was commentating the show with David Tuckman. And I went to LA, like, I don't know, a fair number of times, six, six times or something for one week at a time. And I would, I was staying in a poker house with Chris Sparks and Seth, 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 and a couple other guys. Uh, they, they had an extra room and they would let me rent it like one week at a time. And <clears throat> Seth would burn everyone's ear about Bitcoin. And he, he wasn't the most disciplined poker player. So he would have the most bankroll volatility, but every once in a while he would score a, a tournament. And I know now that he would rapidly seek to convert the poker stars dollars into Bitcoin. And so now if you go back and, and Google Seth, 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 Bitcoin, you can see all these threads where he's trying to convert uh, poker stars dollars to Bitcoin at like 80 cents. And uh, as I understand it, he just sort of held on to the Bitcoin. Yeah, I think he was a real diamond hander and just had incredible foresight to um, pick up on that trend and just go full conviction. I, I definitely should have should have listened a, a lot more. Now, um, there are there are some to go a little forward in our story because I want to I want to pick up from. 2005, 2006, those were fun years. Um, a lot of poker players got into Bitcoin around the time that you, you had a real uh, dead moment in online poker history. And there were essentially no sites operating in the US um, except for Seals with Clubs, which was like a Bitcoin site. I never, I never played on that site, but um, a lot of poker players did. And I guess in retrospect, the stories are pretty fabulous because they were playing for now, whatever it is, 1 million, 2 million. Um, did you ever play on that one? I mean, feel free to answer or not, but did yeah, you? Yeah, I played a ton on sales with clubs. And at that time, you know, with the Black Friday climate with like payment processing, poker sites were constantly saying, hey, we have your money. We just can't cash you out because, you know, we're having trouble finding payment processors. And Bitcoin was the perfect kind of BS detector that like, hey, if you are actually operating the site responsibly and have segregated player funds, just pay me out in Bitcoin. So it wasn't just seals with clubs. I would say, you know, um, America's card room started doing Bitcoin payouts, Bovada. And I, I do think it was a, a, a really useful tool for online poker sites around that time. So is it fair to say that was uh, an intro to crypto for you? Like basically Absolutely. crypto yeah, is I mean, I was pretty much strictly using Bitcoin at that time as a fiat on and off ramp to online poker sites. Um, I definitely like regret not taking a little bit more intellectual curiosity about the whole thing. I was pretty much just using this as a vehicle to play online poker. Got it. Um, so going back in time to uh, 2006, which... I guess it was a major transition year for you. Um, it's It was sort of shocking for me to learn that you came upon poker in late 2005, because I remember how good you were in 2006, 2007. So how was your progress so rapid? Putting a ton of hands in, being really obsessive about it. And I do think I was pretty good at 
analyzing sessions after they happened. I, I was uh, kind of very rigorous about after playing a session, going through all the tough hands and reflecting on the decisions, trying to think um, what, what I could have done better, basically. I think that was very helpful, uh, especially when I was starting out. Yeah. And you had, a, if I remember, like a naturally aggressive base to work from. Is that fair? Like you're, um, some people have a good match of like instinct to what you should be doing. And you had a naturally aggressive base for whatever reason, or, or was that something that you didn't have and you learned, you learned that over time? Um, yeah, I think that was something that I naturally gravitated towards. And I think I was just generally like decent at pattern recognition. And there's something nice about like taking the over-aggressive approach if you're trying to get a lot of data and seeing, mm -hmm. hey, if I am bet betting here, if I am three betting here, if I am raising here, people fold a lot. And so if you don't take the aggressive approach, you never really see that. So I think I kind of took a default aggressive approach until I was proved wrong and started getting called down a bunch. And then maybe I tone it back. Got it. Um, so were you early on like the, the database programs, the poker trackers and stuff like that? Yeah, I used those to analyze my own play kind of from the start. Got it. Um, and were you data oriented and theory oriented or like primarily data oriented? Like the, what you're describing is sort of the, the data scientist who's sort of AB testing kind of thing and, and, and sticking on what works. Um, were, did you consider yourself, uh, just mostly data oriented or data and theory? A little bit, a little bit of both. I think I was very like focused on frequencies. So, you know, if a player had a 15% VPIP, like just obviously don't try to run a bunch of bluffs against them. And if somebody's opening a ton on the button, opening 80% or something, then three bet them, you know, anytime you've got reasonably playable cards. Um, I also think that on the data side of things, analyzing what other top pros were doing was really helpful for me. There was one just absolute crusher in the party poker 1020 games, Blood, Sweat, Tears was the screen name. And he just completely ran everybody over. I remember trying to break down his game and see what he was doing. Uh, and that was uh, very impactful in my game. Just seeing it, particularly remember at the time, he was three betting so much from the blinds against late position openers. When at the time, everybody had a very like tight three bet range that was also all value oriented where, you know, they'd maybe three bet tens plus ace king and ace queen. And you'd see blood, sweat, tears had a extremely polarized three bet range where he'd be three betting, you know, queens plus, and then five, three suited. Yeah. And at the time was party poker, uh, an intense interest. I kind of remember you were playing all the sites, but was party poker a particular focus? Yeah, I definitely jumped around kind of wherever the action was, but early on party poker was, you know, where the, the bulk of the action was for sure. So 2006, you're playing every day like multiple hours a day, all to a close approximation. Oh yeah, just uh, grinding super hard then. And then um, how fast is the bankroll growing? Pretty quickly, I, I feel like, um, so I started taking it really seriously kind of like in January of 2006. Then through that um, spring semester, I stayed in college that spring semester, I think left that summer. And by that summer, when I left, I had, um, I don't know, mid six figures kind of saved up from grinding party poker, kind of mid stakes, no limit games at that point. 
I'm confused. Okay. So you started poker basically in late 2005 and in the summer of 2006, when you quit, when you quit school, you had mid six figures. Yeah. I think that's, I think those were. That's, that's astonishing. I mean, it was crazy back then, man. The games were so, so soft. There was so much action. Um, It's not something that you'd be able to replicate today playing, you know, one, two, no limit. Um, But yeah, I pretty quickly worked my way up through limit hold'em and then switched to no limit hold'em and started playing two, four, no limit, kind of worked up to the 10, 20 games. And uh, it was not uncommon for lots of players to have big months in those 10, 20 games. So you have to feel somewhat invincible at this time, right? Like, although you haven't been playing long, did, did you go to Vegas to conquer or did you skip Vegas that summer? Well, I wasn't 21 at the time, so I couldn't play like World Series poker events. But at the same time, going to Vegas was great for networking and just for playing online poker and meeting all the guys I was battling against out there. Um, so I did, I did spend a lot of time in Vegas for basically all the world series bookers throughout my poker career. Got it. So, um, you probably, you organized the house sometime around summer of 2006, and then you also, you organized the house in Cali and then also decided that you were going to spend part of the summer in Vegas. Exactly. Yeah. For those, um, couple years, I would basically spend the summer in Vegas with the house, house of poker players. And then the rest of the year in LA. Got it. Um, so then in late 2006, did the basic trajectory continue? Yeah. Um, I kept playing No Limit Hold'em. And I think I was playing No Limit for three or four more years before I shifted my kind of focus to Pot Limit Omaha. Um, but yeah, spent a couple more years from 2006 to 2008 in LA and then moved back to the East Coast. Um, I kind of remember 2007 as being a year where the size of games exploded. Uh, certainly in the live atmosphere, the size of games just kicked up four or five X. And then... Um, and then online, I remember the same thing. I, I don't remember like when Full Tilt and PokerStar sort of started offering 200, 400, but it kind of feels like it was around 07 where all of a sudden you had 200, 400 and you even had like some 500, 1,000. And I kind of remember 2007 as being a, a benchmark year. Um, Tell us yeah, about summer of summer of 2007. I definitely remember being in Vegas and everybody was grinding full tilt, 100, 200, 200, 400 games. Uh, action was just crazy at that point. I think it was just such a big jump too, because party poker, uh, at least the action typically capped out at 1020. So to jump from 1020 to 100, 200, 200, 400, it was such a big gap um, that if it went well, it went really well. And if it went poorly, you got knocked down fast. Yeah. Um, so do you remember much about your 2007 trajectory? Yeah, you know, I remember taking shots at big games and getting knocked back down and then having to grind and rebuild at 10-20. It wasn't like I the first time I played high stakes online, you know, past 10-20, it kind of clicked and I 
stuck there forever. Definitely it was kind of shot taking, getting knocked back down and then trying to work my way back up. Got it. Now, when you were getting knocked down, were these games with like ghee and like amazing games that you felt confident that you would win in or, or were you, were you taking on people that in retrospect were, were tough? Oh, I definitely played in games. I was an underdog in, had the same issues that, you know, all top poker player had all players have had at that point with ego, bankroll management, all that sort of stuff. It wasn't, I wasn't super strict about, you know, only playing in very soft games. That's for sure. Got it. Who were the players that surprised you that if you could talk with your 2007 self, you would say, all right, stay away from that person because he's a lot better than you think. Oh man, that's a tough one. But I mean, certainly Phil Galfon comes to mind just always been so solid. I feel like there are a lot of players who's like a plus game is unbeatable and their C game. You're not too happy, not too upset to see him at the table. And Phil's type person who just, at least in my perspective, always plays his A game. I never catch him doing something where it's like, Oh man, looks like Phil's tilting a little bit. I've been extremely impressed with him and he's clearly had staying power. That's just unrivaled in poker. I mean, to do what he did, 10 years after that and his recent challenges against top PLO players was just incredibly impressive. Yeah. Tell me about it. It's a pretty, <laughs> pretty brutal experience. Um, so this was this summer of 2007, you had, uh, I remember very well, like Brian Townsend destroying everyone in the, in the spring. And he probably, I don't know, made a few million in that uh, spring of 2007. And then, he was sitting in Bobby's room all summer with a, uh, he would always load up with a million dollars. He would be sitting with a million <laughs> and, and he did that sort of transition to live. And there were some amazing games. Um, were you old enough to play live and was it tempting for you in 2007 to, to do that, that live stuff? Yeah. So when I turned 21, I guess it would have been 2009 and uh, those summers from 2009 to I guess just after Black Friday, 2012-ish, I played a ton in uh, in Bobby's room and just live games in Vegas. Uh, and it was really interesting. Very different transition. Uh, the top players were totally different. You got someone like uh, David Oppenheim, for example, who you know is a very good mixed game player online, but live just total another level. Like he's so good. I felt like his table presence, uh, his ability to make the most out of all the games was unmatched. Um, so it was like, a bit of a transition competing against guys online who were super data analytical oriented and these live players who had a different skill set that I think a lot of online players underestimated at first, but turned out to be very effective kind of in their arena. Yeah. So I, I remember Oppenheim only plays mixed for the most part. And so um, I remember there was a moment when full tilt and poker stars started offering eight game and then eight game was kind of a big thing for a while. And presumably sort of you jumped in those waters and, and then started playing some live mix in Vegas. Is that right? Yep. Um, do you remember when that was when uh, poker stars and full tilt had popular eight game? Yeah, I think uh, right around 2009 is, is kind of when it started picking up eight game triple draw was really picking up popularity ultimate bet always had triple draw um, that kind of ran there. And so I had splashed around in it a little bit between 2006 and 2009, but 
then kind of that 2009 to 2011, just before Black Friday, I feel like mixed games really started to pick up in popularity. So it sounds like your approach is one where you sort of jump in and then uh, study very hard based on your experience. Um, there's not much, I don't know, bookwork or lessons before you you jump in the games. Is this is this how you tackled mixed as well? Yeah, I just feel like it's personally for me much easier to learn with skin in the game and like learn by making mistakes and kind of touching the hot stove and realizing, hey, maybe I shouldn't do that play again or not against that person. So I, I wasn't the type of person who, you know, studied a bunch of theory before jumping in. Um, I would jump in maybe at smaller stakes and try to get a bunch of hands in and get a feel for, for the games. I like it. Um, now, when you take a retrospective on it, are you, are you glad that you had the time and mixed? Do you wish you had focused on sort of perfecting your, not perfecting, but making some marginal improvements in your big bet game? Uh, or do you think maybe you should have gone all in mixed? How do you think about it in retrospect? Because one, one thing I've seen in poker is that actually, if I do a retrospective, specializing in mixed would have been kind of a smart thing to do. Um, there's more glory in big bet, but just in terms of the, uh, the stability and size of win rates, it's, it's a great, it's a great area to specialize in. Um, and then additionally, it's hard for new people to catch you. Like it's theoretically possible for someone who's super talented to come in now and catch you in the space of two years, which should be impossible, right? Like that, that should be impossible based on your experience base, but it's hard for someone to catch Oppenheim in live mixed games because they sit down in, in Bobby's room and they've got 30 plates. Like there's literally 30 games and they're negotiating like, all right, which 12 or 15 of these games are we going to play today? Um, it's not so easy to learn 30 games and learn how to play them six-handed, three-handed, eight-handed. Like that's a, that's an experience base. That's, that's tough to copy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the guys who have succeeded in mixed games, they're not only good at those 30 different games, they're just good at getting good at games quickly. So, you know, take like someone like Sean Deeb. I remember there's one summer where there were a few different, different new games that were popping up in mixed games. And I think he just absolutely crushed coming up with strategies on the fly for those games. I think for me personally, I do better when I'm like laser focused on something. So I probably would have been better off just focusing on heads up PLO or something. Um, things are just better for my skill set, but I certainly wouldn't have changed anything. I was never a great mixed game player by any means, but it was certainly fun to do. And um, I had some good summers doing it. So uh, 2000, 2008, 2009, you're, you said you didn't turn 21 until 2009? Yeah, 2000. Uh, sorry, I guess it would have been 2008. Yeah. Okay. Um, 2008, 2009, those again are very sort of big years for online poker. What do you, what do you remember about those years? Certainly the 200, 400 action was crazy. I had Gus Hansen, Gil Alberti, um, 
getting a, just a ton of games going. And then there was kind of that next level up where from 200, 400, the 501k games launched rail heaven on full tilt. You had players like Isildur coming in, driving just massive, massive pots, huge action. Um, so yeah, it's fun to keep along with. There was also a shift at that point from Hold'em to PLO. And I think that was something that I was uh, fortunate to be like a little bit ahead of the curve on. I started playing PLO and learning PLO. I think before, not before all the players, but before at least a bulk of the No Limit Hold'em players moved over. And it turned out, you know, two years later, kind of that 2010 era, that's where a lot of the very high stakes action was. Were you ever one to get coaching or you just had your, your peer group that you trusted and you would, you would chat with those guys? More peer group. I don't think I ever did like a, any paid coaching or um, anything like that, but definitely peer group with, you know, some of my close friends that were playing the similar, same games at the same time. Um, just talking strategy, that sort of thing. In, in those years, what do you remember as your, as your worst downtick and were there moments where you were like, all right, poker is I'm done with poker. I definitely never got close to saying I'm done with poker. It wasn't anything like that. Um, particularly I kind of enjoyed that aspect of, Hey, even if you do get knocked down, grinding back up from mid stakes or something. Um, I kind of liked that journey. Not that I was <laughs> trying to, um, but yeah, there were definitely a few, a few matches. I remember one in particular against Zygmunt where I started off, you know, down close to a million dollars finished or was then up a million dollars in the same session and then finished off even swings like that are, you know, kind of hard to wrap your head around for sure. Zygmunt. Yeah. That he'll do that. He'll do that. Yeah, he's a character. That is brutal, but you never like stepped back from it and thought no poker. It was always this is still a great opportunity. I recognize it. I know that my relative skill level is such that I should be doing this. And yeah, and it was fun. I, I liked it. I think uh, by the time I did leave poker, I was a little bit burnout. But at that time, there, there were no thoughts of, hey, maybe I'll do something else. So when I listened to the Joe Ingram podcast, um, which I always find it curious that people do Ingram's podcast sort of first among podcasts, he's a, He's actually a tough interview because he, he'll ask you anything and they're, they're taking uh, questions from the audience. It's a, it's a tough interview. I'm shocked at how many people sign up for uh, Ingram's pod for the first time. I'm impressed with anyone who, who will take that, that fire. But in the Ingram podcast, you mention sort of the mechanics of a downswing and how difficult it is to get yourself to go through that build backup phase. Um, what are some tips for people in terms of how they can risk manage properly? Because I guess the typical experience is one where um, let's just say your bankroll is $100,000 and you're taking a chance on 2550 PLO or something. And you get into a great game. Maybe you find a great heads up opponent and now he beats you for $60,000 at 2550. And of course he wants to keep playing and perhaps you think that you have an edge on him 
of, I don't know, let's just call it 10 BBs per hundred. Like you think you're beating him pretty seriously. Uh, it's hard to get yourself to quit that situation because your earn is so much better there than it would be if you drop down to five, 10 PLO or something. Um, how do you, how do you get yourself to make that transition? Yeah. I always just thought of it as you never wanted to let yourself get taken out of the game. So if like five ten was your main game, you've worked up hundred K bankroll, great to take a shot at 2550, but never, go so far to where then you're going to be taken out of the 510 game. That's your main game. So if you get down to 40 K, like I was always pretty good about like, okay, I need to call things quits here. You know, we're in this uh, poker boom games are going to be really good. The worst thing you can do is just take yourself out completely. We're now you're staked or playing on makeup or playing, you know, 25 cent, 50 cent when you know, you're a really solid winner at 510. kind of similar in crypto right now where, you know, there's all these sites that are offering hundred X leverage and there's temptation to do a ton of trading and uh, hop up on a bunch of leverage. And it's like, no, I think better strategy is just to make sure you're never taken out of the game. One thing that I was kind of th thought about a lot was Aaron Brown, who you've had in your podcast, great book called, I think, Red-Blooded Risk. Exactly. He talks about the concept of risk ignition and that like risk is this meter that like you should not be scared of and you should not over embrace, but like you need to dial up just the right amount. So you're applying enough risk so you can kind of take these smart shots. If that 2550 shot goes well when you have 100K bankroll, maybe you've just jumped up, you beat the guy for 20 buy-ins, you're up to 200K, and now you can be you know, a more solid, have more solid footing for future 2550 shots. But you don't want to dial up the risk so high that you keep playing when your roll is down to 40K, you get stacked three more times, five more times, you're down to 15K, and now you can't play 510 comfortably. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not experienced in crypto, but I can imagine that um, I can imagine that among the only survivors are people that have had a measured approach and been just sort of long, but not irresponsibly long over over years, right? Because one way to think about it is in terms of risk of risk of ruin models, which I know you think about in poker because I heard your interview with Joe Ingram, but um, the risk of ruin models, you care about your edge, you care about the standard deviation of the underlying process, uh, and um, you care about your initial bankroll and um, it's highly relevant for poker, but it's also relevant for crypto. And you can, you can sort of model these things out, okay, if you're, if the underlying return is 20% uh, per year in expectation and the variance is uh, the standard deviations 40% and your initial bankroll is this, like what is the probability of ruin if you're 50% invested, if you're 100% invested, 150% invested, all of these sorts of things. And um, obviously if you're 100% invested, you can't be ruined. But anytime you get to... Um, 150%, 200%, your chances of being ruined go up dramatically. And in the crypto context, you can sort of think, um, what is your probability of ruin, say, over the next year if you're 200% leveraged and, and you get, um, let's just say, I don't know, 25%. That gives you 
an ex-ante measure of ruin, but another way to look at it is if you look at, say, the past five years of crypto, which ex-post have been a great time to be in crypto, you could just examine, all right, what, what percent of the people that are just 100% long crypto have survived should be 100%. What percent of people that have on average been 150% long crypto have survived? It's going to be probably, I don't know, 70, 70%. I have to look at the exact drawdowns, but what percent of people that are 250% long on average have survived? Maybe that's, I don't know, 35%, depending on when they timed it exactly, how much cushion they had from, from whatever upswing they rode. And then let's say guys that are 500% long on average, what percentage of those have survived over a five-year period that now you're starting to get into sort of numbers close to 10 or 20%. Um, so I'm sure you've seen some people that have gotten over their skis leverage-wise and uh, have sort of flamed out. Totally. And it's tough because there's so much survivorship bias in all of this where, you know, the traders you see on Twitter, you know, showing the massive PNLs are the ones that, you know, timed out leverage pretty well, you know, whether through luck or skill and ran up a huge role. And you're not seeing all the people that, you know, gambled on 25x leverage and quickly got wiped out. Kind of like you're saying, like, how many 12-month periods have there been in the past five years of crypto where there hasn't been a 50% market downturn that would wipe you out on any sort of serious leverage? Like, you'd have to be timing it out really well. Yeah. And that, the, the leverage component in crypto is complicated, right? It doesn't work like stocks. Like, you have to, you're, you're paying... I don't know, if you were 2x long the S&P, you'd probably be paying 3% interest or whatever. But if you're, if you're 2x levered crypto, you're paying a much higher interest rate, right? Potentially, yeah. Kind of depends it's, how exactly you're levering up. There are a variety of products. Perpetual futures are kind of the most common one on a centralized or decentralized exchange. But there's other ways to lever up, whether you're borrowing cash against your crypto position, then using that to buy more crypto. I know that's something that's got a lot of people in trouble, especially like earlier this year, where in May, uh, Ethereum dropped from 4,400 to you know 1,700. And I feel like when it was at 4,400 at that point, everybody felt like, oh, okay, this market's like finally mature. There's no way it'll be, there, there will ever be another 70% drawdown. And like, boom, immediately there was. Well, now that we're on crypto talk, I think we're going to transition fully to that because we have about an hour and a half and I know the crypto stuff is what the audience wants to hear. So we're going to save like your history 2010 through 2015 for uh, your second podcast, whenever that might be. All right. Um, okay. So you've recently put out a crash course for people interested in crypto and NFTs uh, what led you to do this and where can people find it? Yeah, it's just something that I've onboarded a lot of uh, friends into crypto in general. And usually I make a couple of videos for them showing them how to get uh, started with whatever they're trying to do, whether it's DeFi, NFTs, just buying some crypto. I'm always hesitant to like send people to YouTube just because even if I trust the video that I'm sending them to, like three clicks later in suggested videos, they're trading dog coins on 100x leverage and it's hard to, you know, there's no like one structured place that I feel like that is a good place to get your feet started. So um, I created kind of these videos from scratch, put them up on this website, coins.fyi, totally free. Um, 
that is kind of a walkthrough on how to safely store your own crypto in a hardware wallet, how to get involved in NFTs, and how to get involved in DeFi. So what, um, what percentage of your crypto activity now is NFTs versus coins? Uh, NFTs is pretty low. It's not something that um, I have a massive amount of exposure to as far as like my overall crypto portfolio. Yeah, I think uh, oh, certainly less than, less than a quarter of it. Got it. Um, but you explain in these videos the whole process of buying an NFT on OpenSea and this sort of thing. And you even go through the process of how one would mint an NFT. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really cool technology that is going to be transformative in some way. I don't exactly know how that's going to play out. So I think like a lot of the current NFT projects are probably going to be worthless in a couple of years. Um, but by learning about it now, I think you'll be well positioned to kind of spot those trends uh, as the technology just becomes more and more uh, a, a part of life. Now in the NFT space, this is sort of my naive take on the way it's going out. Um, in your videos, you explain gas fees, which are essentially the transaction costs that one must pay. And they're, they're high on the Ethereum network, right? How high are they now? Like if you wanted to buy an NFT that cost $1,000, how much would you be paying for gas fees? All right, let me pull up gas tracker real quick. Um, so right now, gas on Ethereum mainnet, kind of the main Ethereum network, is 146 quay. So to just send Ether from one wallet to another, be about 12 bucks. To do a more involved transaction, like buying an NFT, probably more like 100 bucks right now. Got it. Now, to solve this problem, people have come up with side chains that maybe are less secure, but have fewer frictions. But my observation is that most of the NFTs uh, still are on the Ethereum network. So people are still paying the $100. The, the expensive NFTs, the ones that gain traction, they seem to be on the Ethereum network. Is that true? Yeah, it's kind of like, let's say you were going to like tokenize the deed to, your, deed to your house and put it on a blockchain. Like, do you want to put it on Ethereum, the network that's had smart contracts live the longest that has the most activity or do you want to save a little cash and put it on polygon or avalanche or something it's one thing if you're you know dealing with a small collectible item and there definitely is a place for that but if you're talking about you know a blue chip nft something that's trading hands for serious money uh almost all that activity is on ethereum mainnet so polygon for instance that is they're sort of partners with OpenSea, is that correct? Basically OpenSea uh, you know, allows you to buy, sell and trade NFTs on both Ethereum mainnet as well as Polygon. So OpenSea, they trust Polygon and it probably, is it fair to say it probably is secure or to your way of thinking that's not good enough, it's not tested for a long enough period? Yeah, I would just say it's newer. I mean, Polygon has, you can see like how many billions of dollars of assets have been moved over to the Polygon network. And it's a huge amount. Um, it's just always a trade-off between decentralization, security, speed, transaction fees. And Polygon has uh, kind of tweaked some variables to make transaction fees low 
Um, but security is a little less proven. It's much less decentralized than Ethereum. So it's always kind of trade-offs between those things. Yeah. And the other observation is that that when the transaction costs are very low, the supply is increasing so much more rapidly because basically lots of people are minting new NFTs on the Polygon network. And um, that might be one of the reasons that the prices are low. Um, do you think that's true? Like, are, is, this, is the supply of higher quality and more limited on Ethereum because of the, the friction of the $100 gas? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're not going to mint uh, an NFT and pay $200 in gas if you only think that, you know, it's got a market value of $25. Um, so there's definitely that where like transaction fees basically almost serve like a spam filter where uh, on Polygon, if it's effectively free to mint something or to send a bunch of NFTs to people wall people's wallets, you're going to see a lot more of that. I know that's something that OpenSea was kind of having an issue with where people could like mint all these not safe for work NFTs, then send them to Brandon Adams' wallet. And like anybody who goes and looks at your wallet, like it shows your collection and it's a bunch of like extremely graphic NFTs right at the top that somebody else sent you without your permission. Do you keep your wallet public so that people can see what NFTs you own? Uh, I mean, I've got a few wallets. Um, I have like the, the CryptoPunk on my Twitter profile is in yeah my public wallet. Got it. I should have listened to my friends that said to buy a CryptoPunk and make it my avatar. I did not do that. <laughs> Yeah, you've had a few punkers on here. Strasser was in it for a little bit. Yeah. Crypt, crypto punks, uh, board apes, and Zed horses. Those were the ones that people told me to buy and I did not buy. <laughs> Zed horses is a really interesting concept. I never actually bought one of those or got involved with it, but I love the idea that you know you had this game that also you could gamble on the game. Uh, it just seemed like a cool kind of blend of both collectibles, online gaming, online gambling. It seemed like a cool project. It, it is it is cool. The price action hasn't been quite what the apes and the and the punks have been, but it's been it's been pretty pretty cool. Um, have you ever thought like I'm gonna make an NFT? Yeah, so I mean, as part of this course, I I minted one that was basically like a utility token. It's not like a piece of art or anything, but just kind of wanted to go through the process and see how it works. It was surprisingly easy, um, and basically the way the NFT that we minted in the course works is that if somebody buys it, they can uh, burn it or send it back to me and I'll make a short video on whatever their crypto project is. Kind of inspired by a popular business podcast called My First Million, where they stopped accepting advertiser, advertisers for their podcast. And instead they minted like one last NFT for five minutes of airtime, put it up for auction on OpenSea and it sold for you know like 30 grand worth of ETH. Um, I thought it was a really cool experiment. So kind of did something like that. Yeah, so this is an area that I'm very interested in, like the future of NFTs for content provision, because it's such a natural place for, for NFTs. And yet um, we haven't seen a lot work there. The observed volumes in NFTs are for stuff like, like punks and apes and memes of various kinds. And there hasn't been a lot in content provision. I guess you could say that Gary V's thing is a form of content provision, um, but it's just sort of shocking that there ha haven't been more NFTs for conferences, for uh, 
podcast support, like you, like you mentioned on my first million or book projects, film projects, things like this. Maybe, maybe the friction of the, of the gas fees is one of the constraints. Like if you were to come up with a new book and fund it by uh, producing a bunch of NFTs, the, the hundred dollar per NFT gas fee would be quite a constraint. Yeah. That's basically how I view it. Like this is really interesting technology that's going to keep evolving. And I don't have a great outlook on how exactly it's going to play out. So I certainly don't want to like load up my entire net worth in random JPEGs of penguins or something, but I do want to know how the technology works. So as it does evolve, I can keep an eye on what's happening. Um, and I'm sure trends like, you know, conferences and utility NFTs are only going to continue to grow. And the way you see it going is um, OpenSea is the dominant platform where one would uh, produce an NFT and, and, and sell it? They have been up until now, but they're starting to face pretty fierce competition. Competition. Coinbase is uh, launching an NFT marketplace. FTX is going big into the space as well. Um, so I think OpenSea is a great product, but they haven't really had any serious competition uh, up until the past few months. Got it. Um, and do you think that gas fees will trend down a lot over time? Yeah, so basically people, um, the developers in the Ethereum world are kind of working, working on scaling Ethereum in a couple different ways. First is through side chains like Polygon, where basically it's an entirely different blockchain that you can bridge assets from Ethereum to Polygon or Avalanche, another side chain. Um, that kind of functions similarly to Ethereum. The same apps can run on either chain, but some of those variables uh, when it comes to decentralization, security, fees are tweaked a little bit. Um, so I think you know, that's one way Ethereum is scaling. Another way is through uh, what's called rollups, which is basically they batch a bunch of transactions into one and you split the fee between all those transactions. Um, so there are a lot of like very smart people working on ways to scale Ethereum, help reduce uh, transaction fees. But at the end of the day right now, I would say like the fact that you have all these people willing to pay hundreds of dollars in transaction fees on Ethereum without any incentives um, means that people find the block space and the network extremely valuable and useful. If you take a look at something like Polygon or Avalanche where transaction fees are really low, yeah, there is a lot of activity there, but a lot of that is heavily incentivized too by these kind of rewards programs that those side chains are using to stimulate that activity. Um, so while I think a lot of people say, you know, Ethereum's broken due to high gas fees, um, look, it, it is if you're trying to buy a $25 NFT or make a small trade or something, it's not going to be the place to do that. But um, I would say that those fees are more of an indicator that this is early technology that people find super useful. It's kind of like the internet when you're paying a bunch for a 56K modem and you know you wanted to load up one image and it just kind of loaded line by line really slowly. You had to make a bit of a, a mental leap between that experience and streaming Netflix 4K 10, 10 years later. Now, when you say that Ethereum is having, trying to develop side chains, um, you mean they're trying to do low cost low friction uh, side chains like Polygon, but but Polygon isn't an Ethereum side chain, right? It's something different or? Uh, I mean, it's it's a Ethereum compatible side chain is I think a reasonable term for it that has a bridge where, you know, if you're on the Polygon bridge, let's say you have 
to ETH in your wallet on Ethereum mainnet. You can go to the Polygon bridge and bridge that ETH over to the Polygon sidechain. And then if you want to do, say, a bunch of DeFi, let's say you want to borrow some USD against that ETH and then trade it on decentralized exchange. You can do that on all on Polygon with way lower transaction fees. And then when you're done, you could bridge uh, whatever assets you ended up with back to Ethereum mainnet. Got it. Um, so since you've been involved in, in sort of the full history of crypto, um, what are some things that have surprised you? Like one of the things that I find sort of surprising is that um, Bitcoin was such a clear winner in that one of the problems that I had with crypto was the idea that you could have infinite substitutes flood the market. And it wasn't obvious that there would be a clear winner in that process. And Bitcoin became sort of a focal point equilibria, or perhaps it was simply because it had a slightly longer track record so people could trust it a bit more. And it, it sort of won and defeated all substitutes. Um, <clears throat> that was a bit of a surprise to me. What were some of the surprises that you saw in the crypto space? Well, certainly the aspect that um, smart contracts would develop as quickly as they have to where, where they are right now, especially in DeFi, where you take like these concepts that were uh, in finance that were only available to super high net worth people. You know, if, you've, if you have $5,000 in your bank account and you want to borrow some cash against it, you know, banks not even going to tell you the time of day. If you have 50 million with your bank or in stocks, it's super easy to borrow against it. And the fact that... Um, that's been kind of unlocked in DeFi for the average user, whether they have $200 in their Polygon wallet or $200 million, uh, I think is a really, really cool use case um, that kind of democratizes these financial tools. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about that one, but that completely makes sense. Um, were you early on Ethereum? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I kind of followed it relatively relatively early on and um again like you it was it was, it was very hard to predict w whether bitcoin was gonna get supplanted by something else whether ethereum was going to actually work whether it was going to get hacked and all go to zero i mean it all kind of looks obvious in hindsight um but at the time none of these things were obvious at all you you had a quote that i liked from joe ingram's podcast you said that being in the right place at the right time is a skill. Because in retrospect, you had uh, two big waves that you rode, uh, poker and crypto. And maybe you could throw NFTs as like a third one in there. I don't know enough about the trajectory, but, um, but I like that quote, that being in the right place at the right time is a skill. I'm wondering if you could develop that idea a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I kind of think of it as like, luck is a skill. Like you, you, to some extent, you put yourself in the right circumstances to take advantage of luck when it happens to you. I think um, I've been decent at this, but it's kind of something that I've just observed with other people who have been early catching waves in various industries, whether that's poker, software, e-commerce, crypto. Um, I think the biggest thing there is to get the reps in and really try to analyze, hey, you were early in this poker wave. What did you do right? What, what did it look like when this industry was taking off? And what parallels can you see in that with something new like crypto?
So what are what are some of your tricks for putting yourself in the right place at the right time? You you mentioned when you weren't old enough to play in the World Series events, you would you would go to Vegas because you valued the networking component. Um, randomly, I've seen you over the years at uh, various conferences. I remember I ran into you at the Summit Conference in LA. Um, conferences in retrospect, by the way, when I think about it, um, maybe something that I underinvested in because I think about how many great ideas that I've seen in conferences that maybe I followed through on, maybe I didn't, but, but like, certainly just take the summit conference, for instance, like so many amazing ideas I've encountered there at very early stages. And, um, the, I never got into like the main Ted conference, but they had the Ted satellites, the popular one in Palm Springs in the early years. And, and, um, that was a super fun conference where you'd encounter ideas early. Like I think conferences are, it's something that easily one could overinvest in, but I've encountered some great ideas there, the MIT sports analytics and other ones. Um, are you a big conference guy or did I just catch you at that summit conference by chance? I've been to a few. And I mean, I think they can really spark that um, kind of idea inside you. I feel like the, the two big things for me are being curious and taking a long-term approach where you don't need to like go to Summit LA, come up with an idea and immediately start making money or with it or something. You just kind of are curious about what other people are doing, what other people are passionate about. There's that quote that like, you know, what um, engineers are doing on the weekends is going to be what everybody's doing in 10 years, something like that. I think that kind of resonated well with crypto where you had this early, super passionate community of people behind it um, that were putting a ton of their time bandwidth and resources into it. Um, and if you could just be curious to like, kind of like learn about why they liked it, um, that put you well positioned to then take advantage of the train, the trend from an investment perspective. So also in the Ingram podcast, you talk about how, um, networking is really about just sort of being exposed to people and following what they do and less about sort of actively being in touch with them. I'm not sure I've, I've got that exactly right, but I'm wondering if you could develop that idea a bit. Yeah, man, that interview was a while ago. So you probably- Oh, you're right. It is, two, it is I 2015. Do, but... I, it, was, it was quite some time ago. Yeah, but I guess I would just say like when it comes to networking, like it's more just about like being curious and making, you know, relationships that don't have any particular agenda. You're not like trying to get in with one person to like, take away something in specific, you know, just be curious, be, uh, and have things that you're passionate and interested about and knowledgeable about that people are also curious in. Now for the next five year game plan, uh, you strike me as a planner. I'm, I'm wondering what you have in mind is, is crypto NFT central to that? You want to follow developments closely. How do you see the next few years shaping? Yeah, so I, I view the crypto world as like something that I find very interesting and enjoy investing in. It's not like what I do on a day-to-day -day basis as far as kind of my overall life. I actually have an e-commerce business that I started with another poker player in 2016. So that's kind of like my day-to-day -day work life. And crypto is more like a hobby and investing for me. What is the name of the e-commerce business? And we've got two brands. One is Gold BJJ. It's a jiu-jitsu gear brand. And the other is Bird Rock Baby, baby shoes. 
It started um, yeah early 2016 when my business partner and I uh, were both training a bunch of jiu-jitsu and uh, we both have young kids and had an idea for kind of a new style of baby shoe. These brands were kind of side projects and then picked up enough momentum that we jumped into it full-time and have been running them for about five years. It's kind of like a oddly boring traditional business for uh, someone with a poker background. I feel like a lot of poker people have gotten into tech, but um, this is just a, yeah, kind of a standard e-commerce business that we have a warehouse team of employees working on here in San Diego. It's been um, a very fun business to run outside of poker. So something something like that is, uh, is that like a Shopify business or you, you do what Shopify uh, would do for others where you- Yeah, we sell on our own Shopify websites as well as Amazon. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I've got some random questions that I want to tackle. Um, you mentioned the jujitsu in Joey's podcast. You mentioned boxing. I didn't know about this history of skateboarding. I like that. So you have a history of extreme sports. You like to get a little adrenaline going in your sports. Um, you've done a lot of travel and ad- adventure stuff, rock climbing, extreme skiing, this kind of thing. Um, what gets you going now? Is it still boxing and jujitsu? Yeah. So I still train jujitsu pretty much every morning. Um, it really has been the perfect substitute for poker for me. It's like this heads up match that is a combination of strategy and tactics, as well as a physical aspect. Uh, it's super, super fun. And it's, I don't think it's any coincidence that you see a lot of poker players that have gotten heavily involved in jiu-jitsu. Well, you're looking very healthy these days. So that uh, might be something to emulate. How, yeah, always how, is, working on it. how is the injury profile for that? I don't think it's as bad as you'd expect. Um, I wouldn't say it's any more injury prone than something like soccer where, you know, you see people blow out their knee on a soccer field occasionally. I'm not saying you never see an injury in jujitsu, but it's not super, super high impact. Do you still do some boxing? Uh, no, not really. I was boxing a bunch before we moved to San Diego. And then we moved to San Diego. I tried out a few boxing gyms here and it just seemed like the vibe here was jujitsu. Like when the first uh, jujitsu athletes moved to the U S from Brazil, they all came to San Diego and opened up jujitsu academies here. So there's so many like places in San Diego where you can go learn jujitsu from elite, elite competitors. Um, that it was kind of natural to transition from boxing and jujitsu when I moved here. Uh, and it's been, yeah, a nice change. So there's, there's like a safe way to do jujitsu actively. Right. And with boxing, I was doing boxing for 18 months and it was a lot of fun. I think I got in the best shape I've ever been in. I would, meet with this guy three, four times a week. We do uh, 45 minutes of cross training and then 45 minutes of boxing. And one of the reasons we quit was he got so frustrated because I didn't want to get hit in the head. And he like really wanted to hit me in the head to teach me the right techniques to prevent me from dropping hands and stuff like that. Um, and I've noticed in boxing, they always want you to spar. Like they always they always want you to get hit because that to them is the most effective way to teach. Um, how is it in jujitsu? You just tell them like, look, I've got some kids. I, uh, I want to do this every morning. I don't want uh, ex- to explain a black eye to my wife. Like how, how does that go? Yeah, that's a nice difference. Cause in boxing, like, you know, even if you are sparring, like you can only go to a certain intensity level if you're not trying to like knock each other's brains out and have concussions. <laughs> 
And in jujitsu, you can really spar at basically 100% intensity um, because there's no striking. It's a grappling kind of wrestling style sport where you're trying to put people in submissions. Um, and as long as you tap when you're, if you feel like you're in a dangerous spot, you kind of reset at that point. But yeah, that's my favorite part of jiu-jitsu that you really can go 100% without um, extreme risk of getting hurt. Makes sense. Um, I want to ask you about your Zoom background because we live in an era of Zoom consultants. Everyone is on Zoom all the time. Obviously, I have a big fail today. I'm in a hotel room. You can see the fire alarm in the back. It's not a particularly nice hotel room. Um, you've got some nice paintings back there. You've got perfect lighting. Um, is this all by accident? Yeah, I'm just in a guest bedroom in my house. Nice. What are, what are the what are the paintings there in the background? That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. Something abstract. <laughs> Got it. No. Um, okay. So, what was the year of travel? Because I I distinctly remember there was a year where uh, you were traveling all about. What was that year? Man, I don't know if there's any one specific year, but I have done a ton of traveling through the poker days. Um, I'd say probably the year I traveled the most was uh, started with Aussie Millions, um, big poker tournament in Melbourne. And from there, I went to Thailand with another poker player, did a bunch of rock climbing out there. Um, from there, back to the US, Vegas for World, World Series, then to Europe for World Poker Tour over in Europe. Um, I definitely traveled around kind of the, the poker circuit, circuit a decent amount. Went to Macau, all sorts of stuff like that. What are, what are some highlights for you? I, I would suppose it's some of the adventure travel. Yeah, I did a really cool ski trip to Antarctica. That was probably one of the highlights. Um, we took a boat from the southern tip of Argentina uh, across the Drake Passage, which is like super gnarly stretch of water where, you know, the entire boat is going from 30 degrees this way to 30 degrees this way for like 48 hours straight. And then you get there and it's super calm and amazing mountains that just run right up from the water. Um, and then, yeah, we were backcountry skiing. So I was on a split board. It's basically like a snowboard that splits down the middle that you can use as touring skis. You put skins on them that help you glide uphill. And, you know, if you see this peak that you want to uh, try to descend, you figure out a way to get to the top of it then slap your skis together into snowboard mode and snowboard down. So that was uh, a really, really cool trip. We were just skiing on some very remote terrain, penguins on the mountains. Um, one minute it would be like 50 degrees and kind of sunny and you'd be in a t-shirt. And then the next minute, just like total blizzard. Uh, really, really cool place. I like it. And is your Instagram still up? Can people uh, find videos and pictures on, on Insta? No, I think, uh, yeah, I've tried to get off social media a little bit in the past couple of years, still uh, a little bit active on Twitter. Um, but in general, I feel like social media is not, um, not great for me personally, like just from a mindset standpoint. So on that note, you strike me as someone who's very good at time management. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but this is just my impression. <sighs> Assuming that's true, what are, what are some of your secrets of, of time and energy management? Scheduling's huge. I mean, I've got one kid and another on the way. So like, especially once you have kids, like you have to be on top of time management or scheduling and scheduling, or you just don't get anything done. 
Um, so, I mean, I'm super active with the calendar. Anytime I book something, I have it on there, um, both to keep my time managed and also to make sure that like I'm living up to my obligations. And when I say I do something like it's a priority, I'm going to get it done. So for me, mostly scheduling and then just making sure that I have priorities that are uh, fitting their way into that schedule. Like if, if I say fitness is going to be a priority, like I need to schedule those blocks that I'm going to train jujitsu these mornings, I'm going to get a workout in these afternoons. Um, cause if I don't do that, it just goes by the wayside and I spend all day on the computer. <laughs> yeah. It's something I need to acquaint myself with because when I was thinking about getting organized, right? Like then the fashion was stuff like, I don't know, David Allen's getting things done or something, which is basically a to-do list approach. And now the fashion is fully for the calendar approaches that you talk about, throw the to-do list out, waste of time and focus, focus on the calendar. So it sounds like you're very much of that philosophy. Yeah. You know, I use like a to-do list approach for specific things. Like for our e-commerce business, we use Asana to, as like our task management. So I have like all my to-dos kind of organized by date in there. Um, but when it comes to like bigger picture in my life and kind of how I want to structure my life, uh, I'm definitely big on putting everything in a calendar. And you just use like a, like a Google or Apple calendar or something like yeah, that? Yeah, just Google calendar shared with my wife. So, you know, she can add stuff to it and block off time and see kind of when I have obligations. Um, you mentioned Aaron Brown's Red Blooded Risk. Are there are there other books that you're quick to recommend to people? And uh, what are some maybe forums in the crypto space that you follow? Or oh man, when it comes to books, uh, one I read recently was Bill Perkins' uh, Die With Zero. I thought that was a really interesting um, just kind of discussion on, all right, you know, you've got investing as part of your life, but like, what are you actually going to do with this? And how do you want to time that out to make the best possible use of it? There are you know, tons of activities that are great to do in your 30s that you don't want to do it in your 70s. And you know, if you spend your 30s just trying to like fill up a bank account in your 40s, fill up a bank account, you kind of get to the end of your life with uh, a bunch of money and no experience to show for it. So that's something that like, I've tried to be very conscious about, that like, money is kind of the gas in the car. The idea isn't to sit at the gas station filling it up the whole time but to like take the car around and have life experiences. He's on my podcast wish list. We've uh, traded a couple messages. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, any other books that you strongly recommend? And for people that don't know that much about crypto, like myself, that want some, some go-to places, what do, you, what do you recommend? For me, it's pretty much just Twitter, but... Yeah, one more outside of crypto that just like I think is a really good mindset book for life in general, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. That's one of the rare books that like I've come back to and read multiple times and just really gets you in the mindset of like, hey, when something bad happens, you know, bad is relative, you can kind of flip that into good. All right, this is what I'm going to learn out of it. This is what I'm going to take out of this experience. That's been um, super impactful on my life. When it comes to crypto, I think what uh, books are just, too slow moving for how fast the tech of crypto is moving. So it's all on Twitter, in my opinion, and discord groups for particular projects. So like, let's say you find a particular NFT collection or a particular DeFi protocol that you're interested in, join their discord group or their telegram group. And that's a great way to kind of stay up to date on what's going on there. 
I like it. Yeah, I've been behind there. I'm a member of zero uh, Discord or Telegram groups. Maybe I'll have to buy my way in by buying an NFT that gives me access. You know, I think it's it's hard to learn without skin in the game. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people that I've helped onboard and like figure out like how NFTs work that were super skeptical beforehand. Um, and then they bought one and like got very into the kind of the collecting, the deal making, the trading aspect of it. Um, again, it's not something that I think that like is a great investment strategy. I think a lot of these things are going to be worthless, but it is pretty cool technology that I think is worth learning about. So people who want to find you, it, am I right in thinking your Twitter is at Cole South? Yep. I come out of hibernation maybe once every six months to interact a little bit there. I'm not super active, but that's, that's where you can find me. DMs are open. So always open to talking to people there. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate this. Thanks, Brandon.